The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11 at verse 17. 1 Corinthians 11, 17, continuing in our study of this great epistle that covers a variety of themes. If you've been following with us through our study of this book, you see how many varied subjects the Apostle Paul addresses. We come to the subject of the Lord's Supper tonight, which we just observed as a congregation last Sunday, but we hope to delve more deeply into its meaning and think about it as we read and study these words. 1 Corinthians 11 at verse 17, hear the Word of God. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves, truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. The manner and practices of observing the Lord's Supper, or what we call communion, have clearly varied throughout the history of the church from different places and different times. Here's a brief description of an outdoor communion service that took place in 1745 in 
Abington, Pennsylvania, which is not far from present Philadelphia. It's swallowed up by the Philadelphia area now, but in those days it was frontier. It was Saturday, April 20th, 1745, David Brainerd's 27th birthday, and he's involved in this. He and Pastor Beattie arrived at Abington to aid Pastor Treat in the administration of the Lord's Supper according to the method of the Church of Scotland. When they arrived, Pastor Treat was preaching the Saturday preparation sermon. So there's a sermon on Saturday to prepare for this. It wasn't observed that often, so there was special preparation for it. Especially on the scattered frontier, the serving of the multitudes who came from miles around required the assistance of visiting ministers. The lengthy forms of worship usually began with a prayer and fast service. In other words, they would be fasting on Thursday when communion tokens in the form of small distinctive discs, usually metal, were distributed to approved participants. In other words, the participants were screened to make sure that they genuinely professed faith in Jesus Christ. On Saturday, the final preparatory services were held And the season was ended with a Thanksgiving service on Monday. So you see, it involved a lot. Sunday was literally the great day of the feast as the partakers surrendered their tokens. In other words, they gave their tokens and shared in the wine and specially baked sacramental bread at tables covered with spotless linen. Unlike the English independents who were accustomed to pew communion, We usually do pew communion here. You sit in your pews. The Scots insisted that communicants must be actually seated at the table and served in relays, if necessary, to accommodate any great number. The Westminster Confession was phrased to recognize this conviction. As the communicants filed to and fro, each serving amid the singing of psalms, the 103rd Psalm was a great favorite, the ministers in charge would alternate in dispensing the elements. Some services are known to have thus continued for seven or eight hours and were sometimes carried over to another day. An alternative was to set out long rows of tables in groves outside the church to permit larger servings. Gives you a little idea of how different communion can be. And when you read about the Great Awakening in Scotland and the and the great communion services that George Whitfield and other of the revival preachers were involved in, Whitfield counted it the, the very apex of the peak of the Great Awakening and his experience in his life to participate in those communion services in the Scottish outdoors. Even though the particular details of how the Lord's Supper is received may vary greatly, The central meaning of the Lord's Supper is vital to understand for all of us, and the manner of receiving it in an attitude of repentance and faith is very important. For many of us, the Lord's Supper is very familiar, so that we almost don't even stop to think about it, but it doesn't mean that we rightly understand it. And there are two negative tendencies we have to avoid. One is to make too much of the Lord's Supper, which some branches of the church do to give it almost a magical power, or to think too little of it, to despise it, to make it too commonplace. That was the problem at the church 
of Corinth as we read about what was happening there, and Paul has to instruct them and rebuke them. Their observance of the Lord's Supper was evidently being carried out by what the early church would call the love feast, having a regular meal in conjunction with the Lord's Supper. So there was a a regular meal or feast where people would eat their fill, and that was carried out in conjunction with the Lord's Supper. But what we see in verses 17 to 22 of our text is that the problem was usually the church met in a house, and as you can imagine, they would want a house as large as possible, so it was usually a a house of the more well-to-do. There weren't a lot of well-to-do at the church of Corinth, but there were evidently some. But some of the people, some of the members of the Corinthian church were servants or slaves. They were very poor. They worked long hours, and they wouldn't be able to get there till later. And what we find is that there were there was such disorder going on. Paul describes that there were those who were going ahead and eating, and apparently they were eating all the food sometimes, and that the, the poor would get there and they would all be done. And there were those who were actually drinking all the wine and getting drunk. All these kinds of abuses going on. And so in verse 22, he rebukes them. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? I think that one of those opening scenes in the movie Gone with the Wind, not much of that movie sticks with me, but remember how the star, I forget her name, Scarlett O'Hara, was going to some picnic and they instructed her, eat before you go, because it's not polite for a young lady to eat at the picnic itself. In a sense, Paul is saying, do not go to observe the Lord's Supper if you're starving, and you're going to eat all the food and not wait for the rest. If you have, you have homes to eat and drink in, eat at home before you go if that has to be the case. But don't abuse the Lord's Supper. And then he moves in to correcting their wrong behavior by reminding them of the meaning and significance of this important sacrament of the church in verses 23 and following. What is the significance of the Lord's Supper. He tells us it's a proclamation or of the sacrificial death of Christ, his redeeming work. And we read about it in verses 24 and 25. Very familiar words, these words of consecration that we normally hear spoken when the supper is observed, where the bread broken for us symbolizes the death of Christ, his work on our behalf. And it's not merely an example of love. The death of Christ is not merely an example of great love, as Gandhi, the great Indian uh, worker, described it. He thought that Christ's death was merely an example. He didn't see the redemptive nature of it. But no, it's described that it's for us. It's for you. This is my body, which is for you. And the same with the cup, the cup of the covenant, the the cup by which the covenant was ratified, the blood of Christ, its blessings were secure. Just like in the Old Testament, there would be shedding of blood to ratify any covenant. There would be sprinkling of the blood on both parties of any covenant to, to bind them to their sacred obligation. So the new covenant was established and ratified by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so the cup symbolizes that Jesus' death and resurrection procured our redemption. 
Let us think then about the meaning of all of this. First of all, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is a sign and seal of our union with Christ in his death and resurrection. The Lord's Supper is a sign and seal. And we want to talk about these two elements of our union with Christ, the believer's union with Christ in his death and resurrection. First, it's a sign. The bread, the cup are ordinary things that signify something, that point to something. They are a sign, something by means of which something else is made known. We know what signs on the road say. If there's an arrow with a left turn or something like that, we know that that signifies that you can turn right here. Moses' rod was a sign. Remember, it turned into a snake. It was a sign that God had appeared to him and that he was endowed with authority from God to make these declarations. An Olympic gold medal is a sign in a sense. It doesn't have value except for what it stands for. Of course, the gold is worth a lot, but it has a lot more value because of what it stands for. The Lord's Supper signifies something. It it makes known the saving death of Jesus Christ. The Puritan Thomas Watson said that the Lord's Supper is a visible sermon wherein Christ crucified is set before us. Every time the Lord's Supper is observed, it's like a sermon. It's a sermon that even a child can understand. It's like one of those pop-up books, you know, that you have that you read to a two-year-old that you open them, they just pop up. They're so obvious what they mean. It's a picture of the benefits of Christ's sacrifice with the central element in, in do this in remembrance of the Lord's death. And we find it's to be observed until he comes. Unlike baptism, which is once and for all in a believer's life, the Lord's Supper is observed frequently, regularly, because it represents a work of God that continues throughout the life of the believer. The work of God's grace by which a believer continually derives spiritual nourishment, forgiveness, sanctification from the benefits of Christ's once and for all sacrifice for sin and Christ's present mediation of those benefits to the believer. All of that is part of the sign nature. And then it's a seal. We talk about the Lord's Supper as a sign and a seal. A seal is something which authenticates. You know, in the olden days, in the ancient world, a king would have a signet ring which had a seal on it that he would implant in in hot wax and he would show his seal to a document, let's say, to convince others that the message is really from him. We still do, do that if you get a document notarized and the notary puts his or her seal on that and signs it to convince whoever might read it that it's truly authorized by the person who signs it. A seal is not really a benefit to the giver, the person who does it, but it's a benefit to the recipient, to someone who has received salvation. This sacrament is a seal that confirms to the believer, confirms to us what we have received from Christ. It seals it to us in that sense. It confirms it. So when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we stand in faith on the certainty of Christ's 
work for us. And he died to forgive our sins, that he rose again to assure us of eternal life. And our assurance is strengthened as we partake and we look to Jesus Christ anew. And we stand in that sign and seal of what our redemption is. Then secondly, we look and we see that the meaning of the Lord's Supper has a present aspect, a sign and seal of our communion with Christ. We touched briefly on this a few weeks ago, but if you turn back to chapter 10, verse 16, we read there that Paul is referring to the Lord's Supper in that verse, and he says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? In other words, the Lord's Supper signifies our communion with Christ. And in the Lord's Supper, we really do have communion with Jesus Christ and the triune God. We have this sharing. We have this participation. We have this fellowship. Not that Jesus Christ is in the actual element. Scripture never asserts that. But we commune spiritually with Jesus Christ. We come anew in repentance and faith, and we come in prayer and in praise. And then, after verse 16 of chapter 10, Paul gives us this secondary sense of communion as a result of Christ. He says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So because of our communion with Christ, there is communion with one another when we observe the Lord's Supper as well. And so we see something of the problem that was going on at Corinth. Far from declaring their unity and their communion with one another as a result of their communion with Christ, there was this disorder. There was this despising of the church of God. It wasn't glorifying to God and it wasn't edifying. It wasn't building up the members of the body of Christ. One of the great themes that Paul deals with in this book, the divisions that are going on, the factions that he speaks about here. Instead, there should be this unity symbolized by the one loaf and the sharing of the bread and the cup. And so we must not see the Lord's Supper as a mere ceremony or a mere ritual that has some kind of power in and of itself. Rather, we should see the Lord's Supper as an opportunity to have fellowship with the living God on the basis of our union with Christ. And then there is, thirdly, there is the meaning of the Lord's Supper that has a future aspect. It is a pledge of something to come. And we see that in verse 26. We referred to it. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's this future reference. It's a commemoration in that it looks back, remembering in faith what Jesus Christ did. There's a present aspect of renewing and looking anew to Christ now and communing with him. But there's this future looking with anticipation and expectation and hope that Jesus Christ is going to return to right all wrong, 
to judge the world, to bring justice to the universe, and to complete the salvation of his people who belong to him through the work that he accomplished. And we look to that day with expectancy, with joy. Now, every Christian knows the anguish of wrestling with indwelling sin and fighting temptation and struggling with our own prayerlessness and dullness of heart when we read the Word of God, when we hear it preached, sometimes even in the corporate worship service, how we can be distracted. I'm sure none of you are distracted right now. But that day is coming when there will be no more sin. We can't wait for that. And the Lord's Supper is a reminder. We observe the Lord's death until He comes. Let me just briefly talk in our fourth point before we get to our applications. Number four, what is actually received from this sacrament? It's a means of grace. We receive from it something, the benefits of forgiveness, of spiritual strengthening and nurturing. All these are not derived from the sacrament itself. The sacrament symbolizes these things. And is a seal of these things. But these are all benefits from Jesus Christ himself and what he did as we receive these things by faith in him. So in other words, from the Lord's Supper, we receive testimony about these things, just like a sermon being preached about these themes. It's a confirmation of these things that help us to see them better. But it's a means of grace in that the Holy Spirit gives these things to us anew on the basis of our union with Christ. Any strengthening, any encouragement, any grace comes directly from the Holy Spirit, from the work of Jesus Christ. Just like we heard this morning, if you were here, about the wonderful work of the Spirit from John chapter 16. We experience that through the Lord's Supper. It's always by the work of the Spirit as the Spirit gives us more and more of Jesus Christ, shines the great floodlight on Jesus Christ, shows us who He is. There is no saving grace in a sacrament itself. It has no efficacy in and of itself. It is through the work of the Spirit. Well, let us think of some practical applications of what we have briefly seen in terms of what the Lord's Supper is. The first one is this. We must come to the Lord's Supper in faith. We must come believing. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, and he's repeated it twice here. It's important. It's not merely an intellectual remembering. Anyone can know. Unbelievers, atheists know about what the Bible teaches, about what Jesus did and what the Lord's Supper is. It's not merely an intellectual remembering, but it's looking to Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death in faith. It has no deep significance for us without faith in Jesus Christ. And for some of you, the implication here are that you need to come to Jesus Christ for the first time. You may have participated in this service, this sacrament, outwardly a hundred times, but if your outward participation isn't mixed with true faith in your heart, then the ordinance has no value at all. 
I was thinking about that this week. I was raised in a church. I don't know that the gospel was really preached there very clearly, but after I came to faith in Christ in my sophomore year of college, and by the way, hearing Alex play up here reminded me that when I was in high school and college, I I took voice lessons from someone down the street. My whole family did. And part of taking voice lessons meant in the summertime, you had to go to these little country churches around Carlisle and sing solos, which I did. So there I was, standing up front as a 12th grader, feeling kind of sheepish about it, but singing these great solos. And I didn't do that great a job, but, you know, they didn't have a lot of people willing to sing. And I did it. Well, I say that because after I came to Christ and came back to my home church to worship, the thing that struck me the most was the meaning of the hymns. And I sang these hymns that I had been singing all my life. I wouldn't be surprised if it didn't well up with tears as I did this. I can't remember exactly, but I remember thinking, I can't believe what these hymns are saying. You see what I mean? I had sung those hymns. I had my Sunday school badge for never missing a Sunday school thing every year. Even when we went to Ocean City, if we went over the weekend, we went to church there so, you know, I could get a little pass showing that I'd been to Sunday school. That's how intent I was getting the 52-week little prize. You can do all of that. I did all of that. I went through the communicants class. But I don't believe it was mixed with faith. There was intellectual assent to that, but there wasn't faith in Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. How different singing those hymns was. How different taking the Lord's Supper is when you partake with living and active faith in Jesus Christ. What is true faith? It's trust in Christ to save you. It's trust that his death and resurrection paid the penalty for your sins, that it was sufficient for you to see your great need and your sin and to humble yourself before God and pray for his mercy to you. So when you participate in the Lord's Supper, you are doing more than just physically eating the bread and drinking the cup. You are doing so looking to Jesus Christ. The just shall live by faith. It's kind of like the American flag. They say that expatriates around the world celebrate July 4th more in a, you know, more vigorously than American citizens here. I don't know if that's true. The Lidditz parade is a pretty great parade to make you feel good about being an American. But, you know, if you look at the flag and wave the flag, that kind of flag waving is only meaningful to the degree that that is something that is meaningful to you in your heart. Just like burning the flag. Burning the flag is only meaningful if you really mean that you are uh, decrying the United States and standing against what the United States stands for. It's something like we might say Valentine's Day is for husbands and wives. Maybe you exchange cards or get your wife flowers or something like that. It's outward symbols and reminders of the genuineness of your love for one another. And so it is that as we come to the Lord's Supper, we must come with faith. Come confessing our sins anew, trusting in Jesus Christ, 
knowing that we are pilgrims and sojourners and that our lives are bound together with Jesus Christ. A second application is that as we come to the Lord's Supper, we must examine ourselves. And Paul goes into this in verses 27, 28. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. There is the necessity of examination. And this is why we do not allow young children to take the Lord's Supper until they publicly profess faith in Christ and have understanding to agree that they, a degree that they can examine themselves. There must be some ability to look at their lives and confess their sin and to realize what Jesus Christ has done. And so Paul is saying they must not carelessly or irreverently partake of the Lord's Supper. They weren't distinguishing the Lord's Supper from the common meal. They were treating it lightly, we're told. And he goes on to say, that is why, verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. He is saying prophetically that some of them were becoming sick and dying, and it had to do with this serious abuse of the Lord's Supper at Corinth. And he talks about God's judgment. Now, as we read this, study this, we are to understand that for Christians, God's judgment is never unto condemnation and wrath. We could use the word judgment, but we might better use the word discipline. It is God's fatherly discipline. It's a temporal judgment. And here, in the sense, these believers, some of them died. They went to heaven still. They belonged to Christ. There was this temporal discipline or judgment from God. And so he calls them to examine himself, themselves. Verse 31, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now, we must be very careful. We're not apostles. We can't say, oh, this person is really sick, so they must be being uh, judged by the Lord for some specific sin. God's ways are very mysterious, and the way he used suffering in all of our lives, we are not to leap to conclusions about other people's hearts. But the Lord's Supper is an occasion which is a reminder, a regular reminder to kind of catch up on what do we need to be confessing? What are the sins of omission or commission? What have I, what am, what are, where are the idolatries of my heart? We looked at idolatry the other week. Where are the idols in my life that I need to renounce and turn away from and hate and forsake because these things are displeasing to God? And so, this call to examination applies to us. We may not be abusing the Lord's Supper, hopefully, to the degree that the Corinthians were. Let's hope we're not. But there is still this need to make sure that we don't approach the Lord's Supper in a nonchalant kind of way, to, to be despising it in some way. It doesn't need, mean that we need to come with a long face and be you know, terribly serious, but it is a serious thing. There is real joy involved, yes, but it is serious matter. We must come with our minds and our hearts engaged, thinking about the significance of what all this means, a time to humble ourselves, but a time 
to be comforted by the gospel in which we stand. You might think about your relationships to the people in your life as you come to observe the Lord's Supper and think, what are the ways that I have sinned with my tongue? How am I not loving others as God has loved me? Those are the ways that we can think about examining ourselves. But a third application is this. We must come to the Lord's Supper prayerfully. Of course, this is implied in all that we've seen. But if this is called communion, if there is real communion with the Lord, it is not because of some magical nature of the elements. It is because of spiritual communion with Him, which is only ultimately through prayer, as the Holy Spirit helps us to seek the Lord in faith. So we must come prayerfully. And don't we all feel how difficult prayer, true prayer, is? The greatest joy of salvation is knowing God through Jesus Christ and having that fellowship restored. What a great privilege. That's why when I sang those hymns when I was a young college student, the idea that I can now live and walk with Jesus Christ as my Savior present in my life every day. And you read through the Psalms, and you think of David's reflections as it becomes so evident that this was a man who walked with God. That's the kind of communion. Look at, let me just read the beginning of Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. There's, there's David's cry to the Lord of wanting to have fellowship and communion with him. And that is expressed in prayer. That's the type of communion that you and I also are called to have, and so we come prayerfully. The Lord's Supper is no lifeless ceremony. We might say it's a living ordinance, especially and importantly when it's linked with faith and repentance and self-examination and prayer. Do you know God in this way? I ask you that. Is there a communion with God, the triune God, in your heart and life? It's not outward religion. It's not cultural religion. It's not merely knowing something of God's laws and fearing his wrath and hoping that on the judgment day somehow everything's going to be okay because you're certainly not as bad as Hitler or Stalin or someone like that. No, it means knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, and rejoicing in His goodness and His faithfulness and His mercy to you, and desiring in your heart to more and more wholeheartedly follow after Him in obedience and in walking with Him. You know, one of the great marvels of modern technology, I think, is Skyping. Probably all of you have Skyped at some point or another. We Skype with our grandson in Florida, and he calls us Kermit the Frog because we have Kermit the Frog up on the screen and he just calls us that. So we're Kermit. You know, he can't quite say that. But, you know, that's who we are. And I've talked to missionaries who are so blessed with the fact that they can have communion 
with family members and supporters back home. It's kind of like there was once the telegraph, and that gave you some communication and communion. Then there was the telephone, and now there's Skyping. For some of us, it's like Star Trek technology. You could just go on the screen, and there somebody is. And of course, if a husband and wife are Skyping with one another across the world, they have a union that they have by virtue of their marriage. And that's what we have with Jesus Christ by virtue of what he's done for us. But daily, we have to cultivate communion. And Skyping is like an instrument that brings communion to the forefront for a husband and a wife who are apart. The Lord's Supper is like that, we might say. It's, it's a vehicle by which we enter into communion with God. And certainly reading the Bible and praying, worshiping, there are other means of grace as well. I urge you to give yourself to these means of grace that may be pretty ordinary in one sense. We think of them as things that we're very familiar with. But what a great and glorious goal it is to live and to walk in communion with the triune God. May you do so to his glory. Let us pray. Father, to God be the glory, great things you have done. Thank you that we have tasted and seeing that the Lord is good. Thank you that we have entered in by faith to those who know Jesus Christ. Thank you for the riches of this banquet you have given us and that expectation that one day we will see Jesus Christ face to face and we will be like him for we shall see him as he is. Help us that these things would be more and more real to us, to live in light of them in the midst of busy lives, temptations, trials, deep suffering, the ordinary mundane nature of life, whatever our lives might be this week as we go forth from here, Father, may it be with a renewed resolve to know and to walk with you through Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.